Well, let's take our Bibles together. It's my favorite words to say. Let's turn to Exodus 15. Exodus chapter 15. On occasion, I will take a summer time to do kind of a summer preaching series. If you've been outside today, it's summer. We just concluded our series, Well Done, Good and Faithful Church, in 1 Timothy 4 through 6. And what I wanted to do this summer, as we get into our new building in particular, is to address some questions that I think are vital. I think especially in the spirit of getting some newer members maybe caught up in some areas of discipleship. And so for this summer, I'm going to do a topical series in various parts of Scripture. I'm calling this series, Biblical Answers to Difficult Questions. Some of these questions are in response to a focus group that I utilized in our own church, made up of members who have been here just a couple of years or so, just to kind of help me gauge kind of where they are. I wanted to take the pulse, so to speak, of our church, and, and so I think we gathered some good questions. So here are the questions I'm going to address. Are we in the end times? What is biblical worship? What is the purpose of my suffering? What are relationships in heaven like? Should I be afraid of climate change? Don't get ahead of me on that one. (laughs) How do I deal with unbelieving relatives? Why can I trust my English Bible? Why don't we speak in tongues anymore? And does biblical parenting guarantee results? Now, just in case you're going to have a busy summer, if you want the short version, the answers to these questions are yes, God-focused, God-glory, and you're good. Terrific, no, prayerfully yes, because, and to a degree. So we'll see in September. But if you didn't write that down, then we'll go slowly together. But today, to introduce this mini-series, the first difficult question I want to address is, why do we sing? Why is singing together such an integral part of our gathering? You don't go to sign a contract on a new house and the the, uh, realtor doesn't say, now before we sign these, let's open with a word of prayer and a song. You don't go to the grocery store and the checkout clerk says, before you uh, get this two-for-one special here, let's sing a song together. Why do we sing? And in fact, you might even ask, why would we include in a series on difficult questions the question, why do we sing? Well, the answer is that by and large, the Church of Jesus Christ, or at least cultural Christianity, has utterly lost touch with why we sing. Ask the average evangelical, without reference to actual salvation or not, ask the average church attender in America why we sing, and you'll get a range of answers. You'll get answers like, well, singing is our worship time. Without knowing the first thing about worship and somehow making music the only element of worship, it kind of chaps my hide a little when somebody says, we worship and then you preach. Like, well, that's not right. Other answers... Well, it's how I connect with God. That it is my means of emotional connection. And others might say it charges me up for the week. That singing the songs of our faith is a means of emotional empowerment. All of those have an element of truth, but they don't contain the whole truth. In fact, the most popular image on countless church websites. If I see this image one more time, I will probably never ever go to another church website. But the the most popular image that represents so-called music worship is the image 
of a smoky stage with a few musicians in torn jeans, a room full of people with their hands up in the air. None of them even know why. I'm going to address that in a couple of weeks. It's the same image that you see on any pop singer's website showing pictures of their concerts. You can't tell the difference. For the first and only time in my life, I went to Justin Bieber's website just to see what an image of his concert looks like. It's the same as church websites on music worship. There's no difference. Now, in a couple of weeks, we're going to address a biblical theology of worship. That's a much broader topic, but singing is included. But, but we want to address singing today. We are a people very much defined by our music. Our music reflects what's most important to us. Historically, in the church, people fight over music in the church. Everything from drums were invented in the workshop of Satan himself even though Psalms prescribes loud crashing cymbals in music worship, to the argument that we shouldn't sing any music more than three weeks old, or the argument that we shouldn't sing any music less than 200 years old. And all of the extremes on, on every side of those arguments. And for many, many years, churches have fallen for the man-centered lie of catering entire worship services around music styles to fit personal preferences. You've driven by a thousand church signs that say 8.30 a.m. traditional service, 10.45 a.m. for all the people who sleep in, the contemporary service. Bottom line is, though, at our core, I don't think the average church attender can answer the question, why do we sing? At least not from an accurate biblical theological vantage point. So to help us get a grasp of why we sing, I'd like to use the very first recorded instance of congregational singing in all of the Bible, Exodus chapter 15, the Song of Moses. What was the occasion for this nationwide act of worship and song taught to the people of Israel by Moses and ultimately recorded in the pages of Scripture? I want to take the time to set this up. Look with me at Exodus 14, verse 1. This is in the top 10 of my favorite chapters in the Bible, so uh, forgive me if we relish this for a moment. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pihaharath, between Migdal and the sea, and in front of Baal Zephon, and you shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land, the wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, that I am Yahweh. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? So we made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them encamped at the sea by Pihaharath in front of Baal Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? 
Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. When I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. And the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. Coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus, the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Israel has been redeemed from slavery by Yahweh. And now she expresses her gratitude. And what we're going to see in chapter 15 is that singing to the Lord is a response. It's a reply. It's a reaction. Just like any classic hymn, this song of Moses can be divided into four verses. I don't mean the Bible verses like verse 1, verse 2, verse 3. I mean four stanzas, four verses, just like a classic hymn. And broadly speaking, each of those four verses cover one topic, and this will help us answer the question, why do we sing? Each of these four stanzas or verses has an introductory statement. Then it's followed by a theological confession, confessions of truths about God. 
The first two stanzas each conclude then with a retelling of the Red Sea story as proof of the truth of the confession. And then the last two stanzas, the last two verses, conclude with more of an anticipation, a prophetic future event focus of things yet to be, yet that are based on the truths about God. And so we get from these four stanzas four reasons we sing. The first reason, we sing because of God's power. We sing because of God's power. Exodus 15, verse 1. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying... I'm just going to stop right there for a moment. I want you to notice in this introduction to the song, just a couple of observations to help us get our bearings here. First of all, the very first recorded congregational song is in response to salvation, in response to being saved from death and destruction. And remember that when the Bible uses the term salvation... It can speak of spiritual salvation, but it also can speak of physical rescue as as representative or even metaphorical of spiritual salvation. So the very first congregational song ever in Scripture is a response of gratitude to being saved. Second observation, who is the focus? The recipient of this song is God. And they sang this song to Yahweh. That is a great lesson right there. That we sing first and foremost to God, not to ourselves. Yes, we sing to one another, but our singing is for His sake, for His glory. That's the top priority. Now remember, each of the four verses I mentioned has an introduction, a confession of truth, and either a retelling of the Red Sea story or a prophetic anticipation, a a future hope. Verse 1 of the four-verse hymn goes from Chapter 15, verse 1 through verse 5. That's the first stanza, 1 through 5. The introduction. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. And then we have the confession of theological truths about God. Verse 2. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. And then you have to prove that theological truth, a retelling of the story. Verse 4, Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Look at God's power. Verse 1. He has triumphed gloriously. This wasn't a silent victory. This was witnessed by millions. This was a seen victory. This was a manifested victory. This was an open victory. All of Pharaoh's army drowned in the Red Sea. But how is this a manifested victory? How is this God's triumph? How is it glorious? Well, it's glorious because this was God's plan all along. We read this two different times in in chapter 14. It said that God's plan was to get glory over Pharaoh. That was his plan. God had already gotten glory over Pharaoh in the land of Egypt. But now God was including the entire army of Pharaoh in his plan to humiliate this proud man. Verse 3, this theological truth about God is one that perhaps we don't consider as much, that Yahweh is a man of war. And this is a specific phrase. It has the implication of hand-to-hand combat. It means that the battles that God fights are personal. They're personal. 
He comes against those who are in the front to His holiness. But think about this. Why would God choose Pharaoh of Egypt over whom to get glory? Why would He choose Pharaoh of Egypt to be the one to demonstrate His power? Well, God has no competition. He is all-powerful. So He chose Pharaoh because at that time, Pharaoh commanded the grandest army on earth and from a human standpoint was the most powerful man on the planet. And so what better way to demonstrate your power than to defeat the one who has the most power? That's why God chose him. But this gets very, very personal for Moses. It gets very personal for God's people. I want you to know this in verse 2, that the singer goes from a general exclamation of God's power, he has triumphed gloriously, to a a personal exclamation of God's power. Verse 2, Yahweh, my strength, my song, my salvation, my God, my Father's God. The God isn't just generally all-powerful. He's all-powerful on behalf of His covenant people. And so, He deserves to be praised. The Hebrew word means to give glory, to be exalted, to lift high in honor, to give somebody more esteem than all the rest. And then verses 4 and 5, which I read, serves as proof, a retelling of the story, the theological truth that God is all-powerful. In a matter of minutes, Pharaoh's entire army is at the bottom of the Red Sea. God says of himself in Isaiah 43, 13, there is none who can deliver from my hand. I work and who can turn it back? God says of himself in Isaiah 14, 27, For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? In other words, where's my competition? There is none. King Jehoshaphat prayed in 2 Chronicles 20, verse 6, O Yahweh, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might, so that none is able to withstand you. How much power does God have? All of it. All of it. Any power that others seem to have is simply loaned by God long enough for Him to crush them. He has all of it. There is never a possibility of God losing any power. There is not a mechanism by which He could do that. I want to remind us all that it's very tempting to worship God and then very quickly revert to thinking about how something great about God affects me. Instead of just worshiping Him for Himself. And of course, it does affect me. Verse 2 tells us that. The Lord is my strength, my song, my salvation, my God, my Father's God. But remember that at the outset, this song is purely about extolling the power of Yahweh for His own sake. Purely for doing the act of worship. And so I would encourage all of us not to fall into the trap of always centering worship in your heart around what God has done for you. Start first with who He is without reference to you. Leave you out of it. Just be the voice that lifts up praises to God. He is worthy of our praise. And so the first stanza of this hymn, this hymn of praise tells us that we sing because of God's power. We sing because of God's power. Now, the, the second stanza might be a little bit surprising to you. It's found in verses 6 through 10. It tells us that we sing because of God's wrath. We sing because of God's wrath. Here's the introduction to this stanza, verse 6. 
Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. Then you have the confession of theological truths about God in verses 7 and 8. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. And then you have again the retelling, the proof of the theological truth. Retelling of the story. Verse 9, the enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Many liberal theologians have wanted to say that this story didn't really happen or maybe not to this degree. First, we see in verse 5, they sank like a stone. Now they sank like lead. How much clearer can they be? Now, the theme of the power of God still continues here, but with a much more detailed understanding that God isn't merely demonstrating power against a random target. He isn't breaking boards in the martial arts demonstration. He is, with his right hand, which is a metaphor for the strongest arm, as it were, not that God has a right hand physically, but it's metaphorical for taking the strongest part of himself. That's a human way of understanding. With his strong right hand, he shatters the enemy. And and look at this description. Verse 6, he shatters the enemy. Verse 7, sends out his fury. This is a language of wrath against sin. He consumes them like stubble. That's a picture of fire, all-consuming fire. The blast of his breath holding up the Red Sea in verse 8 until God released and destroyed Egypt in verse 10. And in the middle, just to make certain that we know that he's destroying wicked men. This is not a random display of power. This is a display of his wrath against specific men. In verse 9, we have an indictment of the devouring evil nature of of Egypt, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall devour them. God's wrath has been shown against wicked, wicked men. Now, we all agree with the concept of the wrath of God, theoretically, and I know you agree with this concept because you cannot be a Christian and not believe that God is a God of wrath. Those two can't exist together. Otherwise, you have nothing to be saved from. If God is not a God of wrath, then salvation doesn't have a purpose. And we all get that. And yet, in my experience as a pastor, I've found that believers often tend to treat the wrath of God as an attribute, as sort of uh, with Star Wars theology, that the wrath of God is sort of the dark side of God. God does not have a dark side. God is good. God is great. The wrath of God is reason to praise Him. The wrath of God is reason to sing to Him. Look at the descriptions of His wrath, and these are easy to miss if you don't look for them. The descriptions of His wrath are pictures of holiness, pictures of perfection. His right hand's crushing judgment, verse 6, is glorious in power. It's a word that means awe-inspiring. You ready for this? Glorious means worship-causing. That the wrath of God causes worship. Verse 7, his adversaries are overthrown in the greatness of your majesty. We could just as easily translate the Hebrew here, in the abundance of your eminence. It speaks of his fame, of his renown, of his distinction. 
The wrath of God is not just what you were saved from by the death of Christ on the cross. It's not just some uncomfortable truth about God. It is part of the goodness of God. It is part of the perfection of God. It is part of the holiness of God. And it engenders singing because He's glorious in power and He has abundance of eminence. I think this is hard for us to get a hold of and I understand that because this is so far removed from the grandfatherly portrayal of God often prevalent in American evangelicalism, isn't it? In fact, just imagine this. You get your family all ready for church and everybody's all in their their nicest clothes because we want to worship the Lord with, with excellence. And you go out to your car and your neighbor next door has got his hose out and he's washing his car and he waves at you and he sees you getting into your car and you, his, your neighbor says, oh, it looks like you're going to church. And you say, yes, I'm a member of Grace Bible Church of Bakersfield. And the neighbor asks, what do you do there? And you say, well, today I'm going to sing about God's wrath and the righteous fury of God <laughs> against all who would reject His holiness and His free offer of salvation in Christ. I don't think anybody's ever used that as a witnessing plan. Now, obviously, this isn't the only reason we sing, but it is one of the reasons we sing. Let me ask you a question. How comfortable would you be singing a song that says something like this? Oh God who takes refuge, oh God who takes revenge, shine on the earth, rise up, oh judge, repay to the proud all they deserve, amen. You say, I don't know if I want to sing that. That's Psalm 94. And someone might say, well, that's just Old Testament. Old Testament's all about wrath and judgment. We're New Testament. That's all about grace and love. That's a common statement from people who have read neither. The grace of God is everywhere in the Old Testament and the wrath of God is everywhere in the New Testament. Revelation 11 verse 18 pictures the saints in heaven worshiping God on their faces and here's what they're saying in worship. The nations raged, but your wrath came. That's their worship. And the time for the dead to be judged. A cursory glance shows that at least 23 of 27 New Testament books teach on the wrath of God. The book of Revelation teaches on the wrath of God more intensely than any book in the Bible. Now you might be wondering with discomfort about singing about the wrath of God, we don't really sing about God's wrath, do we? Two important thoughts about this. First of all, yes, we do. We sing in Christ alone by Keith Getty and Stuart Townend, which says the wrath of God was satisfied. We sing how sweet and awful is the place by Isaac Watts. It reminds us that unredeemed sinners perish in their sins. We sing the Gettys, O church arise, which says, then see his foe lie crushed beneath his feet. And so yes, we do sing about the wrath of God, but the second important thought is that one of the reasons we sing about the wrath of God is because through the saving work of Jesus Christ, we have avoided the wrath of God. So how glorious is it to sing of His wrath and then to sing of the cross? The cross is the wrath of God. Do you understand that? When we sing about the cross, we're singing about wrath. There's a third reason we sing. Not only do we sing because of God's wrath, and this makes sense, we sing because of God's grace. We sing because of God's grace. The third stanza of this hymn begins with the introduction in verse 11. 
Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Then you have the confession of theological truth about God in verses 12 and 13. You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. Verse 11 represents the basic question of the Old Testament. Who is like Yahweh? That's what the Old Testament is asking and answering. God has just defeated, as it were, all the gods of Egypt by giving the ten plagues upon Egypt and by decimating the Egyptian army. And then verses 12 and 13 give the theological truth of the salvation of God and why is the salvation of God so key for us? Because of His steadfast love. In the first two stanzas, you had a, now a retelling of the Red Sea story, something recent in the past. But now, in stanzas three and four, at the end of each of those verses, there's a prophetic anticipation of the future based on theological truth. Verse 14. The peoples have heard, they tremble, pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed, trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are as still as a stone. I want you to remember some of those key phrases here. Melted away, still as stone. Moses teaches this future event as if it's already happened in the past. Forty years later, after the wilderness wandering, in fact, one of, the, one of God's purposes in having Israel wander in the wilderness for 40 years was this allowed the people of Canaan time to grow in dread and fear of Israel to an epic proportion. When Israel finally crossed the Jordan River, and by the way, they did so miraculously with the same way the Red Sea, the waters parted and they passed through on dry ground. Joshua 5 verse 1 says, As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that Yahweh had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they crossed over, their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. Even going back before that, when the spies went to Jericho to bring back a report and were hidden by Rahab, the prostitute, she told them in Joshua 2, beginning in verse 9, I know that Yahweh has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how Yahweh dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. But why exactly was God working so mightily through Israel? There's a few reasons. Briefly, the first reason is part of the purpose of Israel was to be God's instrument of judgment on a very, very wicked set of people known as the Canaanites. The second reason God was working mightily through Israel is the Canaanites were squatters on land that didn't belong to them. 600 years earlier, the land of Canaan had been deeded to the descendants of Abraham. But the third reason that God is working so mightily through Israel, and this is the most important reason, God is working in Israel because of His grace. Because of His grace. Look again at verse 13. 
Look at who is the effective and efficient cause of the rescue of Israel. You have led in your steadfast love. God initiated the rescue of Israel. God initiated the circumstances around the birth of Moses. God initiated the circumstances around the leadership of Moses to get them out. Why? Because of steadfast, covenant-keeping love to one man named Abraham. The people whom you have redeemed. Redemption, the purchasing of a people that's solely the work of God. It's not a partnership, it's God's work. Israel didn't do anything holy. Israel didn't do anything good. Israel didn't do anything exemplary to deserve redemption. God simply chose to redeem them. Verse 13 continues, You have guided them. There was no free will decision to partner with God. In fact, the story of Israel's redemption from Egypt is a story of hesitation, fear, and lack of faith. I read this to you earlier. Remember their fear in Exodus 14? When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? As a matter of fact, just to make certain that Israel knew that that redemption is God's work, that his guidance is God's work, he guided them to a specific geographic spot. He told them to go to Pihaharath. They would have had to do a U-turn, a U-turn, and they would have had to go to this specific spot, which is one little plain, one little valley on the shore of the Red Sea that would have placed them, the Red Sea here, the Egyptian army there, nothing that direction except rocks and cliffs. God put them in the position to be completely trapped. Why? So that they would know that God alone does the work of redemption. And at the end of verse 13, he says, you have guided them by your strength. What was God's part in salvation? To do all the rescuing. What was Israel's part in salvation? To do all the panicking and all the crying. Because left to their own intellect, they would have gone back to Egypt, right? Israel didn't cause the plagues. Israel didn't cause the Egyptians to give their wealth before departing. Israel didn't cause Pharaoh to let Israel go. Israel didn't part the Red Sea. Israel didn't crush God's enemies behind them. God did it all. And we remember these words, which are precious golden treasures to us from Titus 3, that He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Oh, how we sing because of God's grace. We even sing a hymn in which the chorus is simply grace, grace, God's grace. You know that one. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all our sin. Best words ever. Grace. We sing because of God's power. We sing because of God's wrath. We sing because of God's grace. But the final stanza of this kingdom, no surprise, we sing because of God's kingdom. 
We sing because of God's kingdom, because all of a sudden now we're going to get a future focus. Terror and dread have fallen on the enemies of God, and the introduction to the fourth stanza of the hymn comes in the middle of verse 16. Till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. God's people, by God's grace, will pass by the enemies of God, just like we pass by the enemy of sin, and we wave goodbye to the enemy of sin, we wave goodbye to the enemy of death. By the grace of God, through the cross of Christ, we leave the enemies of sin and death in the dust behind us. And then you have a confession of theological truth about God in verse 17. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which, is, which your hands have established. God's purpose for his people of Israel and ultimately for the church through an Israelite savior named Jesus is to reunite redeemed humanity with holy God to live together with him where he will be their God and they will be his people. See, verse 17 is a predicted return to the spiritual communion and the fellowship that Adam and Eve enjoyed with God in the Garden of Eden, the original sanctuary of God on earth. And after the introduction and the confession, once again and now to end the hymn, Moses gives a prophetic anticipation of the future and it sounds positively like the book of Revelation. Verse 18, the Lord will reign forever and ever. Why does this sound familiar to you? Because it's quoted in Revelation eleven fifteen, just before the return of Christ. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. This is why we sing the kingdom hymn, joy to the world. The Lord has come with the line, He rules the world with truth and grace. This is why we sing the kingdom hymn, Come quickly, Lord, make all things new, redeem the church, your bride. With longing eyes we look for you, for home is, what, at your side. Why do we sing God's power, God's wrath, God's grace, and God's kingdom? But there is one overriding reason we sing because singing about God's power singing about God's wrath singing about God's grace singing about God's kingdom they all fall under the umbrella of one singular primary reason we sing we sing because of God's glory because God is worthy because God deserves for you to open your mouth and sing words that give him glory he deserves praise. The words we sing absolutely have a powerful impact in our own minds and in our own hearts in that order. But the primary reason we sing is to give glory to God. That is the motivation. That is the reason. It is an act of attributing to Him the truths about Himself. If I could put it this way, our congregational singing is first and foremost an act of ascribing to God the character traits and qualities that tell us who He is. For a Christian to say, I don't sing is the same as saying I don't give glory to God. Because God is not looking at the quality of your voice. He's looking at the purity of your heart. The voice will be taken care of in heaven. We don't worry about that. As a matter of fact, I mentioned this briefly, as God was rescuing Israel, 
It's terrific that he rescued Israel. I could trace the fact that we're all here today because God rescued Israel. That's another story for another day. And as God was rescuing Israel, though, while it's terrific that he rescued them, there was a high and grand purpose even beyond saving them. The high and grand purpose was for God to get glory over Pharaoh, the most important man, the most powerful man on earth. Israel escaped from Egypt in the summer or early fall of 1446 B.C. We know who the Pharaoh was. Pharaoh was a 26-year-old man named Amenhotep II. He was an arrogant, power-hungry, cruel king and the commander of the grandest army on earth, several hundred thousand strong, some think even bigger. And just how did God get glory over Amenhotep, who would dare attack his people? How did God glorify himself against Pharaoh? How did God show a 26-year-old arrogant man that there is one true living God? God let him live. That's how he got glory over him. A very close look at all the texts on the defeat of Pharaoh here in Exodus 14, Psalm 136. Never explicitly say that Pharaoh himself died. In fact, he was at some distance behind with his civilian entourage. It's very specific that all his officers died. Never says that Pharaoh did. The Song of Moses here in verse 4 specifically says it was, the, it was the officers who sunk in the Red Sea. In 1898, the mummified remains of Amenhotep II were discovered and positively identified. He didn't die in the Red Sea. God let him live to see God win. He let him live for about 30 more years with the humiliation of his other defeat. He let him live knowing that God had killed in judgment, his oldest son in the 10th and final plague. We know some things about Amenhotep II. One of the things we know is that he had at least three sons. His third son ruled immediately after him as the next pharaoh. His second son had become a priest to one of the cults until his death. But there was an eldest son, a son older than all of them, and a likeness of him was found in tomb number 64 in the city of Thebes, And the likeness of him is that he is a little boy on the lap of his royal teacher, his personal tutor. See, the oldest son of Amenhotep II was slain by God in the 10th plague of the death of all the firstborn in Egypt. In fact, we know from four different archaeological sites that in November of 1446 B.C., just months after the exodus of Israel, Amenhotep did something you never did. He went on wintertime raids. He took a small force into Asian countries and he took back 101,128 slaves, over 1,000 new chariots, and 13,500 new weapons. Why? Because he had to go shopping for a new army. We also know that his foreign policy radically changed instantly. Amenhotep II's foreign policy was one of aggression and intimidation And all of a sudden, his foreign policy was peace and brotherhood, everyone. Why? Because I ain't got no army. (laughs) And Amenhotep lived the rest of his life knowing that the God of Israel had gotten glory over him, living 30 more years until God would get glory over him face to face. Our singing 
is to give God the glory He deserves. Therefore, how should we sing? Quite simply, you sing to the degree that God is worthy. Sing to the degree that God is worthy. Here's how worthy our God is. When King David was preparing for the building of the temple, which his son Solomon would accomplish, he prepared temple servants, including 4,000 musicians. 1 Chronicles 23.5 tells us this. And according to 1 Chronicles 25.7, 288 voice teachers or professional music teachers. Why 288 voice teachers? Well, 1 Chronicles 25 records that the 4,000 musicians, including the 288, were divided into 24 groups. And they were to take turns serving as the lead worshipers in the temple, meaning that each round of service, a little more than two weeks each, would include precisely 12 voice teachers, meaning they did what? They rehearsed. They practiced. I said earlier that Exodus 15 is the first recorded instance of congregational singing in the Bible. It's also the first known instance of an organized choir rehearsal. Did you know that? How do we know that they rehearsed? Exodus 15.1 Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song. It's an imperfect verb. It's a verb that means they sang it over and over and over and over again. This song wasn't written down anywhere. They almost certainly took a great deal of time together to learn this song by memory. No hymnals, no PowerPoint projections, no nothing except putting it in their hearts and minds. And how the church of Jesus Christ has suffered by abandoning glorious congregational singing for concert-like performance atmospheres. How the church has suffered by abandoning rich theological lyrics for emotional repetition of mind-numbing short phrases. How the church has suffered by mothballing her choirs who lead God's people as God's people in favor of a few upfront superstars in torn jeans and exposed chest hair jumping around like idiots on a stage. This is just a little tiny point with me and it's not a point I would foist on anybody else. But the thing I'm standing on, I never call it a stage. I call it a platform so that you can see the word of God being preached and you can see those who are leading you. But it's not a stage. The truth of the gospel The majesty of Christ, the glory of the Lord should lead to elevating our worship in song as far as we can stretch it. You might wonder, what could musicians in Moses' day possibly do? I think we maybe have little pictures of this. Maybe all the horn players just have the little ram's horns and they're just walking around doing random... And people crashing cymbals around randomly. And I don't know what the singers were doing. Do you know that archaeology has discovered what musicians were doing in the 15th century B.C.? Archaeology has discovered a cuneiform tablet. It's a hardened clay tablet in Babylonia. Same era, in fact, within a few years of the Exodus. And it has instructions for performing music. And it demonstrates that the music was composed in harmonies of thirds, like ha, ha, ha. And they used what is called a diatonic scale, a scale with seven notes, like what we use. Our major and minor scales are diatonic scales. We don't know whether the ancient Israelites utilized some sort of musical notation system or not, but what we do know is that music had a system and music was rehearsed because we rehearsed the things that are most important to us, right? 
we rehearse the glory of God. Here's our prayer at Grace Bible Church. While churches continue to dismantle music ministries in favor of finding one key pop star figure, while churches continue to design music to please people and their stylistic preferences and doing, doing it badly in most cases, and while churches continue to try desperately to keep step with the world, our prayer is to go the opposite direction. Our prayer is that the truth of the gospel, the preeminence of the glory of God in Christ would lead us to greater and grander uplifting of our voices to our God as a church. I mentioned this during the Sunday school hour, but our new church building is modest and it's tasteful. There's nothing extravagant. There aren't any crystal ceilings, no granite floors, no ivory bathroom fixtures. But one thing there is, and we built it in, you couldn't take it out with a bulldozer, and that is room for 60 people in a choir. We're praying that eventually the Lord would be pleased to fill that, fill those seats. You see, the, the choir is like the church. The choir represents the church. Different giftings, different talents, different backgrounds. But put them all together, and it becomes a wondrous and a joyful unit together. Some are better at singing, others are better at smiling, and that's okay. But all together, God is glorified in His church and people are inspired to lift up the name of our God of power, our God of wrath, our God of grace, and our God whose kingdom is coming. I gave some benefits to a choir this morning during the Sunday school hour. Here they are again. Benefits to a choir. It gives many members of the church the chance to serve. You might not think you have any gift, but you can open your mouth and you can breathe and you can sing the truths of God. Another benefit, it helps us teach and engender good congregational singing. Third benefit, the choir illustrates joy in the Lord when you see dozens of people smiling at the lyrics that they're singing. It inspires us. There's a fourth benefit. It's a way for us as a church to look at one another while we're worshiping. We mentioned this earlier this morning, but the, the way we're seated has one drawback. You can't see each other. How can you tell if the person in front of you is singing happily? I don't know, maybe the head's, head's nodding a little bit. I don't know. But once in a while, we turn to one another. It's a fifth benefit. We fulfill Ephesians 5, that we are to sing to one another as well as to the Lord. There's a sixth benefit. It provides fellowship of the saints that goes beyond age groups, beyond generations, that, that our choirs are, are the church. They're, they're a representative of the church. There's a seventh benefit. It avoids any star status for one gifted musician. That's not the point. And finally, it, it demonstrates precisely how the body of Christ is to work. Many different giftings all working together to produce worship of our holy God. I'm going to give you three things to think about. The first one is for all of you. The second one is for a few of you. And the third one is for a lot of you. The first one is for all of you. I'm passionate about, and I think all of, our, all of our leaders are, I'm passionate that you, as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, for the rest of your life, you sing for God's glory. Sing for God's glory. As you're pulling into the parking lot here, as you're leaving for your home for church, you ought to be thinking, the, the songs I'm about to sing are for the glory of the Lord, and you sing unto Him. Because God is pleased when he hears the words about himself that are true. The second application for a few of you, 
Some of you are hiding secret talents that you had in high school or even college that you play instruments. You know, we have a mechanism now with a couple of musicians in our church that are happy to help you dust those instruments off and remember how to play them and even take a few lessons. We will provide that for you. If you read Psalm 150, it is the description of an orchestra. That's for a few of you. And then I have one more thought for a lot of you. I want to encourage you to pray about making singing for God's glory alone a lifestyle for a lifetime. We talked about this this morning, but I want to encourage you to go sign up for our choir. And let's do church to the glory of God for the rest of our lives together on this earth rather than to please any man. And so that when the unbeliever walks into our church, they're not entertained, they're not impressed by, uh, by musicality only. They hear, they see, they can visualize the church of Jesus Christ proclaiming the glory of God with all of our might. If you knew that we're going to start singing the doxology and halfway through the Lord Jesus Christ is going to walk through the back doors, how would you sing? You'd be on the front row and say, look, I got my hymnal open right here. (laughs) Sign up for the choir and do that for a lifetime. You're going to be singing in the choir in heaven anyway. You may as well start rehearsing now. I don't know what the Lord's going to do, but Darren and I are determined that we will do our best to lead you to the one singular primary purpose of the church, and that is to lift up the name of Christ. Amen? Let's pray together. Our Father, we come to you now thanking you for this early, early example. It boggles our minds to think that 3,500 years ago, believers in Yahweh were lifting their voices in a desert wilderness to praise you for your salvation. We are in our own desert wilderness, Lord. We're in a world that hates Christ. We're in a world that hates God. We're in a world that hates Christians. And so in our desert wilderness, Lord, we would lift up our voices to give God glory. We would lift up our voices as we walk one another to the gates of heaven. We would lift up our voices to be an obedient church, Lord. May you be pleased with our worship. May you be pleased with that which we offer to you, most importantly, the truths that you have revealed to us in your words, sung back to you with the voices that you made in our mother's wombs to give you praise and honor and glory, which you and you alone deserve. We pray and thank you in Christ's name. Amen.